we're still alive. I'm still alive. I'm assuming Brian's still alive. Are you on the other end of there, Brian? Brian? <laughs> Sorry. That, oh. was too, that was too good a setup to do. See wow. what I did there? I, was, yeah. I got scared. This is this is the humor you all have missed since October 16th when we last we published. So God, has it been two months? It's it crazy. Yeah. So well, you've been all you've been literally all over the world since then. So I have um, been. I've been I've been I've down been. here in my basement just waiting for the for the uh, Zencaster invite, and it's been kind of awkward at times. So yeah, you know, it's uh, the, I'm I'm bad at it's it's hard to podcast from the road. I think that's the thing that I've learned. It's not even that it's hard technically to podcast from the road, but like. If you're not in your special like safe place, it's hard to to get the podcast mojo going and it just doesn't feel right. You know, you feel out of sorts, particularly if you're on another continent, which right. which I was at one point. And so look, I, I felt like I needed to get back home and feel whole again. And I do now. And so I appreciate your patience. I appreciate everybody's patience. I'm sorry that it's taken so long for us to get back to the point where we can podcast again, but I'm happy that we're here. I'm happy that we're here too. I enjoyed following your, your excursions around the world to uh, South Korea, to LA, to New York, to uh, Durham, North Carolina. And the one pressing question I have in following you along in all these great trips is how were the wings at the anchor bar in New York city? So this was interesting. The last night I was in New York city, I was there for the sports broadcasting hall of fame induction ceremony. I was not being inducted. They, they have, they've yet to induct the flip side into well, the, the Pantheon. I'm sure that's coming next year. I mean, we're waiting for the veterans committee to, 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 to this, you know, correct this oversight of the writers who we, they've never liked us. They really never have. They, I mean, podcasts are way too advanced metrics for most of the old timers. You know, they're, they're still, caught up on inducting like Tony Bruno or something <laughs> like that. But, but uh, I was there and I was going out with uh, with one of my former students who works in New York. And so first off, we went to this place that was quite fascinating. Uh, up, I, This was near the, uh, the Ed Sullivan Theater. It was a few blocks north and west uh, called the Library Bar, which it's in a hotel... And you got to go up an escalator and then you go through this like kind of ornate lobby and you walk, you'll walk down this hallway and then you go into this room and it's like, you know, one of those like traditional looking like 50 foot ceiling library sorts of, of things. You know, it's like, it's like a library in a, an aristocrat's mansion. All right. Um, and then there's a bar in there and there's a bunch of like couches and places where you can sit. It was, it was, and it's, you know, low light level. Everything's like all mixed drinks. It's, it's all that sort of ambiance. And so we were there for a drink or two and then decided to go elsewhere and just happened upon this anchor bar. And there was something floating around in the back of my head where I was like, I, well, I know that name from somewhere and I, I couldn't really figure out where but we stopped there and that was when we figured out that it was like the the famous wing bar, like, which I guess is now a franchise out of Buffalo, right? Right. There aren't many. Uh, I don't know how many there are uh, around. There used to be one out here in Rochester, and it has since closed. Um, I know there's the New York City version. I don't know how many there are, um, but it is. It, it is. I, I was interested to see how they are because obviously the Anchor Bar in Buffalo is the birthplace of the Buffalo wing, of the chicken wing, of the wing as we know it. Um, like almost indisputably, like this is the place where it started and it's still, the, it's still the same place. It's always been. You can go there. I wouldn't say they have the best wings in Buffalo, but they're very good. And you're, if you go there for like, you go there, you're not going to be disappointed. Like they live up to, 
hey, this is a place that has good wings. So what were the wings like at the I'm interested because obviously the Buffalo version is, you know, they know what they're doing. But I'm wondering how well you think that would have translated to a New York City version. I th- they were pretty good. I mean, they, they were they were better than the standard fare wings that you would get at a bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hadn't had wings for a little while, so I didn't have immediate frames of reference. But I thought that they they were good in terms of, you know, they were they were they were cooked well. They were almost slightly overcooked, which I think is the best way to do them. Yeah. Uh, the, the sauce was on point. They weren't life changing by any means, but right. they were very, very, they were very good. And it's funny because I was texting with Buffalo native Pat Walsh, who, who's you know my my resident wing guru, and you know he he his first thing that he mentioned was, well, you know those are probably good, but we've got better places in Buffalo, which is basically exactly what you said. Sure. Uh, so uh, I'm going to take it for for that as, as of now. I think that they were good. I enjoyed getting them. I really wasn't hungry, but I decided I needed to go ahead and sacrifice and order wings, you know, for, for the good of the podcast, really, I, and for the good of culinary exploration. And I don't regret the decision. Right. And I, and I appreciate that. And I think that's a good description of Anchor Bar Wings. Like, I don't think that you go you don't go there and they're not life changing. I don't know that they're the best, but they're very good. And they're the OG. And I'm looking at their website right now. They have outside of the greater Buffalo area. They have locations in New York, which, you know, uh, a bunch in Canada. They have like one, two, three, four, five in the uh, kind of greater Toronto area. There's one in Burlington, California, one in Frederick, Maryland, Shirts, Texas, San Antonio. I don't know where Shirts is, um, aside from the fact that it's in Texas, Uh, San Antonio, Texas and Rochester Hills, uh, Michigan, I think, or Minnesota. I think Michigan. Um, I think Minnesota. Okay. Uh, Michigan. Ha. I think. Uh, well, so there you go. Um, so, and so, yeah. So, I mean, what was, and you were also, how long were you in South Korea? Uh, almost uh, five, six days. Okay. Uh, it was, it's weird. It's hard to tell because you fly there and it's tomorrow. Right. <laughs> and then you fly back and it's the same day you left, even though you were in the air for 14 hours. That's crazy. That's got to be the weirdest it's, thing. It's, it's mind bending. It really is. I mean, it, it, it was worse coming back, I think, because, you know, our flight left the airport in Incheon at uh, like 10 a.m. And I think we landed in Detroit at 9 a.m. <laughs> the same day. That's insane. And it's like, well, you, how does that work? You literally yeah. traveled back in time. That's pretty cool. We did. Yes. So, uh, but it was, it was, you know, Seoul was very interesting. We got treated incredibly well. Uh, our hosts at Seoul National University were excellent. And we got to eat some really unique foods. Uh, had probably the rawest fish I've ever had okay. uh, on on more than one occasion, and it was not bad at all. And, um, you know, the I think the, the interesting thing and the tough part for me about any travels in that part of Asia is, uh, as you know, I have a mushroom allergy. Mm-hmm. And the, it's mushrooms are just so like they're, they're like salt or okay. pepper. Like they're just so they're so heavily ingrained in the, the the cuisine that you just never know. And so I was fortunate because I had you know hosts who were Korean who were watching out for me. But I don't know if I could survive on my own in Korea or China or Thailand or, or places like that, uh, simply because I would probably eat something that would kill me inadvertently, which would be bad. I mean, it depends on who you ask. I guess. <laughs> 
So, uh, in, in all of your travels for conferences and stuff, um, kind of end of the year, we're, we're, I think we're starting to think about year in review and year ahead for, you know, all things, including sports media and stuff like that. You know, what, what are some of the, I guess, takeaways that you've had? What do you think the, uh, like, what did you learn kind of going forward and thinking about where things are sports media wise from, you know, either the conferences or just kind of experiencing and talking to people? Well, what do you, what, what, what's on your mind there? I think I, the few things that are on my mind, like broadly about sports media, have have really centered around the following things. First, it's amazing the number of places that you go that sports really isn't that important to people. Okay. Um, so, like, I'll give you an example. Like, we went, so I, I flew out with a group of students to Santa Barbara, California, a couple of weeks ago. I guess it was last week. Uh, b- because Indiana's men's soccer team was in the college cup, which is the, their version of the final four. Mm-hmm. And we were all excited because IU was the highest remaining seed. They had been the, one of the number one teams throughout the course of the year. They, you know, we unfortunately lost to Maryland, who was the eventual champion in the semifinal. So Saturday, IU was playing Louisville in basketball and the game started at, I think it was like 1130 or 1145 Pacific time. So I loaded the kids up in the van and we drove into downtown Santa Barbara to look for a place to watch the game. And there really weren't many places to do it. Like there weren't there, there, there wasn't a sports bar per se. We found a, a, an outdoor pizza bar okay. that had televisions and it was a delightful place in, you know, to watch a game. I mean, it would, the temperature was idyllic. Um, but it was just amazing. We were the only ones that cared, not just about that game, but really about anything that was on the televisions. Like there was minor interest in army Navy, okay. uh, but, but that was about it. And, you know, I, in, in many other places, several places in, in Seoul and certainly, uh, the other times that I spent in, in Los Angeles and, and times in New York, it's like, it's amazing to me. I think we get trapped in a bubble sometimes when we're interested in sports and particularly when we're in sports media, thinking that this is a much more universal thing than it actually is. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't touch people. Uh, It doesn't mean that it can't pierce through. But as far as like the day to day things, I do think it's important sometimes to step back and realize that um, we there's more things that could be done to integrate some of the things relating to sports into the larger culture, because right now it's just one, like one element out of a thousand other elements that people are paying attention to in a lot of places. Yeah. And I think, you know, that especially in the Midwest, I think there's, there's fewer things to take our attention uh, or, or in, you know, the, in Western New York or upstate New York or whatever. Uh, it's like the further, the closer you get to the coast or the closer you get to other forms of recreation, it almost feels like sport falls further down the that's, list. That, that, that's interesting. Those coastal elites taking down sports, um, feeding right into right. Clay Travis. By the way, I saw Clay Travis's book in Barnes and Noble a few weeks ago, and I and, and I stood there for five minutes just ruefully shaking my head at the existence of, of this thing in physical form yeah. in my presence. Um, but no, that, that's an interesting point. It kind of, you know, it kind of ties into some things I've been thinking about. Um I wrote a piece for uh, Neiman Reports, the uh, the Harvard kind of 
state of slash future of journalism blog that they have. And they ask a bunch of people. Congratulations. Thank you very much. They uh, they ask a bunch of people every year to predict the next year uh, in journalism. And so the piece I wrote uh, went up this week. We'll put a link of it in show notes is about um, I call it the subscription apocalypse. And it's a little overstated. You know, you try to be bold in your prediction rather than, you know, I think, you know, ad ad revenue is going to continue to decline. Well, no shit. But you try to you try to, you know, think a little broader. And so obviously, you know, we talk a lot both on here and other podcasts and in our scholarly work about the athletic and kind of thinking broader about the the the, the nature of the growth of subscription, the subscription business model for all media. And um, and one of the things that I, I've been thinking about, and I'm actually working on a piece for Sports Media Guy kind of off of this, is how is like it's the role of the game story in all of this, because like. The and we found this in our research on the athletic. Like there are very few what we would consider game stories on the athletic. Almost none, actually. Um, mm. And you know, I've interviewed people for the athletic for the other fifty-one, and they've said that like a lot of game results and transaction stuff, like they that's for Twitter. Like their editors have said that's a tweet. You know, the the, the athletic is something is you know kind of different coverage, meteor coverage, all that, and they do it very well. That's not a criticism, but um, but I was thinking about that, and I, I've been thinking about the role of the game story a lot because you know it's so interesting. The implicit promise, and I've, I've said this, I said this in the piece, and I'll say this a lot. The implicit promise of any kind of subscription model, I think, in this media environment, is that. I'm getting something here that is that I can't get anywhere else or that is at least worth my five dollars a month, my ten dollars a month, however much you pay for it. Um, You know, it's Andy Billings at AJMC said it's the HBO theory. You know, like HBO has one thing you can't live without. You're going to pay for HBO or HBO now or go or whichever streaming service, whichever version of the streaming service you have. And and I think that you know you'll just illegally download it. Right. Well, there there there's always that, or you can clear your cash and get away from the subscription wall. But we're we're you know right. th- th- thinking legally here. Um, but I do think that you know newspapers are in potential trouble because I don't think people are going to subscribe. Thinking on it from that point of view, from from my kind of point of view, that you got something. What what are you going to pay for that you can't live without? You're not going to do that for game stories. You're not going to do that for who won the game. And, you know, and I think that that's, you know, why, why one of the reasons why the athletic is so interesting and doing so well. But what you bring up is, is the, the other side of it. It's that this always spoken assumption that everyone's seen the game and knows who won and knows what happened. And, you know, certainly maybe you can argue that for like the Super Bowl or like, you know, the NC, the final four, the college football championship game. But you can't always do that. And, and so, and, and, you know, once you step out of that bubble, you realize that on some level, you know, even at the pro and college level, I'm not talking at the high school level, which is a whole different animal, the, you know, what, where does the game story fit into that? Because the, the getting away from the game story model assumes that people know who won the game or that people are on Twitter. And as we say, you know, take a drink, we're saying it, 20% of the internet population's on Twitter. So it's not a huge but base getting it. So I'm 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 thinking these th- these things through actively, so I don't have a a good a well, good me, answer. So let me fire some let me fire some uh, fire some, some 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 counters to you. Oh on please, that. yeah. I mean, it's not just Twitter; it's also the the video stream that they watched of the game, mm-hmm. or or it's their own nightly news, or it's what they saw in Sports Center, or or, or it's there's a there's a bunch of other sources. 
there's, there's the Facebook feed that they follow of, of their favorite team. Uh, you know, I, I think from my perspective, the game story became the, the keystone piece of the sports section because it was, for many years, the only way to get like 95% of the sports coverage that was out there. Mm-hmm. And it just, I mean, that's not really the case anymore. There's just, you know, there, what, what, was, what was a space filler within the newspaper now is a couple of sentences on Twitter or it's just a 30-second video clip. And that's really, when you distill it down to its essence, that's what it is. It's basically just the top paragraph of the inverted pyramid. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that people need that level of detail. And if they want that level of detail, they have so many other avenues that they can go through for that sort of information and then they kind of draw their own conclusions or they just watched the game themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that ultimately, yeah, the to me, like the game story, it, it reminds me a lot of that piece that you wrote that was on uh, the, your, your, the blog and was on the NSJC site about the nostalgia for the, the papers coming off the presses mm-hmm. uh, in the in the movie The Post. You know, the, the nostalgia, I mean, it made me nostalgia is not right, but like the the idea of like where does the game story fit and does it still have a place to me kind of reminds me of that. I mean, there's I don't know that it's necessarily important for the vast majority of consumers to know what happened in each game any more than it's important to understand uh, what happened in minute detail in, in each of the findings in the in the Mueller report or any of the scandals going around Trump. Like to some degree, I think people grasp the big picture by taking bits and pieces and putting it together. And I think whether it's sports or politics or anything else where there's a kind of an arc of of games, an arc of narrative, uh, you know, the, the individual details, I think, become less and less important the longer that goes. And for most of these seasons, whether it's basketball or, or you know, certainly baseball, I don't know that an individual gamer necessarily matters that much. I, I, I mean, I'd agree with that. And I think that, you know, you're certainly right that, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the it's an institutionalized practice is what the game story is. You do a game story because you've always done a game story. I mean, that's, you know. That, that, that's pretty evident, I think, from reactions when people talk about doing away with game stories and stuff like that. And, you know, to be fair, I think, you know, the phrase game story is so kind of vague and nebulous that it's, uh, it's one of those things that you can kind of make to mean what you want to. Not you specifically, but one can make to mean what they want sure. to. And I think that, you know, there are... There, it's interesting because you can have well-written, informative, well-done kind of featurey stories off of a game, which I think is kind of ideal. I think what we're, we're, we're talking about, and, and to their credit, I think most news sports departments have moved away from the local, basically the localized version of the AP story, right? Which is basically, you know, the, the Josh Allen didn't suck and the Bills somehow won version of the story of the game of the AP game story. Um, but I, you know, it, it is, you know, moving, you know, moving away from that practice is running against, you know, and I think not only running against institutionalized memory, but you talk of the nostalgia. And I think that, you know, laden in this getting rid of the, the game story debate is now you're telling us that we're not important. The newspaper is that we're not important, that we don't matter. And I think that my counter argument to that is, well, make yourself matter. 
Like, I think that's one of the big lessons in this digital, in the subscription age. The point I was making in that Neiman Reports piece is I think newspapers are going to be in trouble if they try to go to a subscription model. You know, all the business reasons notwithstanding, the point is, are you going to subscribe to your local paper and The Athletic? And maybe the New York Times, and maybe sure. and and then well, let's throw in Hulu, Netflix, uh, HBO Go for the last season of Game of Thrones, something on, along the lines. Buddy of mine said it's death by ten dollars a month, and I think that you know you can justify a lot of those subscriptions. Can you justify the local paper beyond the sense of obligation or like this kind of you know? Well, and, I should support nobody, local journalism, and that's not a no successful business model starts with should. So nobody. Right. So and <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I mean, it's like it's like we have a we have a co op grocery store here in town, and it hasn't been particularly well run and. You know, the, the, their primary appeal for people, you know, why they should buy a membership and shop there is you should support your local co-op grocery. Well, that's not a good reason. I mean, it really isn't. Like right. if, if your primary reason for supporting something is that, well, you should, that there's there needs to be more. And that right. might sound selfish. That might sound uh, uncivil, but it's also reality. Right. And, and I think for, for a lot of institutions – I look at it like this: like, who are the people that are making this argument? They're, they're the you know the people that work at Pointer. They're the people that that work at the major, um, you know, news organizations. This argument: we need to support local journalism, and it's like, why? What's? And I'm not saying that you shouldn't. What I'm saying is you need to justify it. And right. the justification that a lot of journalists give to the public, I don't think is sufficient to the public, because the public, by and large. You know, they, they do have all of these other sources of information around them. There are plenty of good arguments for quality local journalism that, that should be supported by, by the local public. But what I see, particularly from newspapers, is support us because it keeps the lights on. Support us because we're hardworking. Those really aren't good reasons. I mean, the, 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 there's plenty of businesses in your town that are hardworking and need the mm-hmm. lights turned on. What services are they providing? And so right. I think you're 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 onto something important here. I do think that, um, from a standpoint of the way that journalism at the newspaper level, the local newspaper level exists, a lot of it is not about the journalism; it's about the business model. Right. And the business model, as we've talked about many times, I think is probably going to have to die and then be reborn in a different format. You know, this is this whole thing, the subscription model the online model of, of news distribution. It reminds me a lot of when parents complain that their teenagers are involved in things that they don't think are important, that the parents don't think are important. It's like, well, why would you waste your time doing that? And, you know, most teenagers are smart and just ignore what their parents say and go ahead and get involved in things. And then they catch the, the, the front end of whatever wave is coming. Right. I feel like to some degree, newspapers in particular, and I think local TV as well, uh, to some degree, and certainly radio, are they, they're all the teenagers that actually listened to their parents, didn't get involved in new things, and now are watching as their, their cooler cousins that, that didn't listen to their parents are off reaping all of the benefits. And I think that that's unfortunate, but at some point, someone's going to have to look at the athletic model, look at Politico. Politico's talking about launching new sites. It's like, well, what makes them successful? Like, what is it? They're they're doing news coverage. They're expanding to different countries. They've they've figured out a way to handle this environment. Why should they be any different 
than you know the way that your local newspaper covers things locally. It, it, it has nothing to do with oh, local stuff isn't as exciting. It certainly can be, right. but not if you stick with an approach that is just patently dull and was only there and successful, frankly, because it was the only option for people for a hundred years. Right. And you, and, and kind of to drive that, that should point home, you know, you, you should support your local paper. Okay, fine. Here are all my subscriptions. What am I getting the least value out of local newspaper? Right. Probably. Um, sorry, that should, but I'm not getting rid of Netflix. I'm just not, yeah. no, who, you know, I'm not. And I, and, and it is, I think it's that, you know, and and I do feel in part that you know one of the big problems the the media industry, the news industry in particular, has had is this kind of you know industry wide search for the one size the one the one solution that will fit all right because like it was it was very much the same business model for the New York Times, the only in Times Herald, all that seventy five twenty five ad circulation. Revenue split, you know, it, it worked. It worked because of because of scarcity. We won't go over all the reasons. People are probably tired of hearing those reasons by now. But you, but I think there's this search for, um, well, this worked for the this worked for the athletics, so we're going to do this exact same thing. Well, no, the athletics working because it's got good VC funding, but it's also got good content. It was it was pretty smart in how it and how it rolled out slow then fast and it got and, you know it got good people i don't know if the athletics you know i think it's one thing we're trying to do in our research right we're not looking specifically at the athletic and the specific people it hired and how it rolled out we're trying to look at at the, the bigger picture at kind of what did they do that allows them to be successful even if it's just in the short term you know the political motto um all the you know i think that um, and I'm sure that we can get into corporatization and corporate control and that, you know, Gannett's not going to roll out, you know, Rochester can't do something specific with its newspaper because it's within the Gannett structure. And, you know, there's a corporate bureaucracy and a corporate bu- hierarchy there. Same with Syracuse and advanced media um, and stuff like that. But I don't know. They're, they're, it, it's kind of where my head's at looking ahead. And I just feel like, um, you know, I don't think that this, this model right now is replicable. And I'm really interested to kind of see what happens because I don't want the local paper to die. You know, I like the local paper. The local paper is good. I, I, and, and it's a weird chicken in the egg syndrome. You know, do they, you know, do I don't subscribe because they don't have the, the kind of content I'm doing for. Well, if I subscribe, more people subscribe, could they pay for it? But then, you know, it's, you know, that, that, that argument that kind of goes back and forth, which comes first, the staffing to do the good coverage or the good coverage that brings in the, the money that, that does staffing. I don't know. It's just super, super interesting. And I think it's, um, you know, aside from, you know, the Facebook calamity that is happening, um, kind of one of the more interesting things to think about in uh, in media. And uh, by the way, when did it, I think I feel like the last time we talked, we were all sick of Twitter and done with Twitter. And now Twitter's just looking like go, a gold, like the golden palace compared well, to compared to I Facebook. Mean, a Twitter still sucks. And B, you've you've actually done a nice job of segueing into the next topic that I was going to be. Uh, bringing up on the podcast so but and that that was an actual actual uh good luck segue because i had no idea what we were going to talk about when we We, uh started the call never talk we never talk off air we're like the everly brothers at the end of their career like where they just (laughs) wouldn't speak to each other until they were on stage i had to leave flowers on galen's uh chair uh when he came up to the studio today to uh to atone for wrong so 
So you all saw the news from recently. I guess it was yesterday. The New York Times had the story about how Facebook just like allowed most of basically everybody. Yeah. 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 Just to have access to your private messages on Facebook, so on and so forth. This this is one of a number of very negative stories that have come out about the way that Facebook has handled privacy, the way they have lied about it. And so I was thinking about this last night. And to be fair, I've been thinking about it for a while. I was a very early adopter of Facebook. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was I I started in grad school at the beginning of 2005. And it it had come to IU in like February or March of 2004. I wasn't in school yet. My wife was a an undergrad at the time. She was actually an adopter slightly before me. So I've been on Facebook for 13, almost 14 years now. And, uh, you know, as I've watched these revelations coming out and and the way that, that Zuckerberg and company have handled Mm -hmm. themselves, it's not good. Uh, So I'm asking myself, and I want to ask you this question because I really don't know the answer yet. I'm, I'm strongly considering deleting my Facebook account uh, at the end of this calendar year and replacing it with basically just a professional account that has zero information about me just so I can follow what's going on. Can you give me a good reason why I shouldn't? Hmm. Um, Probably the only reason I would give, and it's the only short answer no um longer answer i can't think of of any reason to talk you out of it the only reason that i that i kind of don't do the delete factor is i don't know you know the off chance facebook gets its shit together or there's some sort of like cleaning up of it like i've got a lot of stuff on facebook uh, a lot of pictures a lot of links a lot of stuff that i like a lot of good interaction that, that I do like, like, it, it's funny, like every time I think about getting rid of Facebook, I have a day like today, I posted that Neiman lamp thing and not to turn this into a, Hey, Brian wrote a thing and it was, and people liked it. But like, I have a lot of comments from people that I don't normally talk to and they're good, well thought out comments, you know, that, you know, this is kind of like the best of Facebook, um, coming at me now, granted, uh, Amazon and Microsoft are currently harvesting this entire conversation to sell me something later today or in two years or whatever. But man, I don't know. They're seeing this. It's feeling like the only reason to stay on Facebook would be just, I guess, inertia. You know, I don't know. You know, it's, you know, that's no, that's exactly what I what I come back to is like, the the two reasons were inertia, like, well, gosh, I mean, it's a lot of work to to delete Facebook. And it's also it it, it harms like I like Instagram, yeah. but but as we've discovered, Instagram's not much better uh, in terms of privacy. And it's also owned by Facebook. So that that's mm-hmm. problematic. Um, and there's these social ties. And I feel like to some degree, that's what they're banking on. Like Facebook is banking on this idea that it would be too much work to delete yourself off of Facebook. And you'd be afraid that you would be missing out on something. You'd be afraid that you would be, uh, you know, putting yourself in a position where, um, you're, you're not keeping up with people or you're not having interactions. And yet everything we've seen out of this company in the last year or two is like, you don't want to associate right. with them at all. Like there's, there's, there's basically zero 
good that's coming out of it from a data privacy perspective, from, you know, from a just a corporate responsibility perspective. And I, I almost feel like I have a responsibility to take myself off of that. And I've never been one of these people that's been like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop using Facebook, da, 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 Like this just occurred to me the other day that it's not like these revelations about Facebook's bad behavior are going to get better at any point in time. Like nothing has happened to Facebook that would make them change their behavior. There's been no regulation. There's been no real ramifications for their actions. And, you know, at some point they, they just bank on the idea that people are accepting of it and they don't really care. And I'm finding more and more that Mm -hmm. I do care and I'm willing to do something about it. So I'm really close. I'm real. I'm like, I'm right now. It's the 19th of December as we record this. I'd say I'm like 80 20 in favor of just deleting Facebook entirely. And I'm, I, you know, I'm going to talk to people about it and see what they think. But I'm, I'm really having a hard time justifying staying on there. Like I just don't get anything out of the experience anymore. Well, I mean, and, and there, there's, there's, so there's a couple different points you're making here, all of which are good. You know, the first one is do, you know, knowing what we know about Facebook, do we have a responsibility? Like, is it almost a moral imperative? That's probably too strong a word, but is it a moral duty to drop, to delete your Facebook account given what this is? And I think one thing they're banking on is this idea that I, I wonder how much people actually care about their online privacy. Um, for this, or is there just this assumption, ah, they're getting everything anyway, you know, it's, you know, th- this assumption that Are you kind of, ha- but like, I, I, that's like, what it, I wonder it, about that. Facebook's like the, like the patient zero of data theft, right? I mean, you don't think about how much of yourself is on Facebook between pictures and posts and, and interests and likes and all the things that comprise your online profile like i would argue there's more of you there than on almost any other um you know techno technology site maybe google has slightly more but outside of google like you don't you're you're not nearly as exposed on on instagram i don't think you're not nearly as exposed on twitter you're not nearly as exposed on on any of the other social networks it's like facebook is so broad and has so much information on you Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a, I mean, that's a good point. I guess I'm thinking like how much people are going to be, you know, most people not kind of like hyper, hyper tuned in media observers like us and kind of like our bubble, um, you know, is my, my mother-in-law going to delete Facebook because of all this? I did that, that kind of thinking on that level. And I don't know about that. Um, well, that's, that's another issue. It's like, it, yeah, you and I, as, as late thirties, early forties, whatever we are, um, you know, we're, we can sit here and say, gosh, we really need to take a stand here and delete it. Well, you know, who's not going to do that is, is our parents and our aunts and uncles right. who are already the ones that are, the most susceptible to the kind of like the yeah. fake news issues on Facebook and all of this. And it's like, if all the responsible people leave Facebook, what does that mean? Like does, it, does it, Facebook, I, does Facebook as a, as a, as a lever of democracy, does it work better or worse with fewer people on it? Right. And it, 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 this is going to sound weird, but I've had this conversation with my wife about the Catholic church. Um, and, you know, I have a very, complicated relationship with the with the with the church these days um but part of my hesitation on on you know just kind of all out leaving it is if people like me i'm I, and i'm not casting myself as this perfect perfect person but if people of my 
political views and my kind of like social views. Uh, um, if we leave, the church is done. Like there, it's not going to get better if I leave. It's only, you know, what, there's an argument of staying in that I can affect change. And can we affect change on it through Facebook? And I don't know. Um, yeah. or, and, yeah. I, and, and like, you know what, if you, if you were a progressive Brian Moritz and you were talking to a Republican, you would say, no, you have to leave immediately. There's no reason to stay. Well, that's probably true. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. Partisan partisanship's a hell of a drug. I'm the first to admit that. Um, but, but I mean, I think the other thing that, that, that's interesting that you brought up with it is, um, aside from like the, the, the responsibility and the privacy factor of it is, you know, getting back to the issues we were talking about with the news, with, with local newspapers, you know, what on Facebook is good? Like what brings you aside from like inertia, force of habit, the app being right there or like, you know, it yeah. being like, like, you know, what, There's what, like, what, what, what like, are you getting from visiting Facebook? And the answer most days is not, I don't think it's a whole lot like Twitter for all of its shittiness. And there's a lot of shittiness at least like, okay, I'm getting news here. I'm getting real time reaction to stuff that's happening. Um, you know, they, they, there, there, there's at least yeah. something I go to Twitter. I'm like, oh, OK, I can see what's going on in the world. Facebook, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to have a good answer to that. They I will I will say this. I, I've been really deep thinking about this and evaluating what I get out of the Facebook experience. And I no offense to the people that I'm friends with on Facebook, but there's probably only about eight people who post things that I'm interested in. And. There's about four to 500 people who post things that are annoying or pointless that I've, that I've, many of you I've unfollowed. Like you don't know it, but I just unfollow you. I'm not mm. saying this because I feel better than you. I just, nothing you say interests me on Facebook. Okay. And that's not your fault. Uh, I think that's the normal. Like think about, think about the, the relationships on Facebook. If Facebook didn't exist, what if you had like 200 people a day coming up and telling you, like five things that they were interested in every day. You'd probably get really bored really fast with most of them, right? Right. You'd actively avoid talking to those people. Well, this is basically just an electronic version of that. Sure. And, you know, and so that's that's kind of where I'm coming from on it. It's like, it'd be one thing if Facebook was this fascinating exchange of information and ideas and, and everybody was kind of communicating on, on a level that was appropriate for them. But the problem is, that's not how it works. Right. It is it is basically a few people that you enjoy and then a bunch of people in the middle uh, that, that you don't really care to hear from. And they don't care to hear from you either. I'm not saying that everybody wants to hear from me because it's certainly not true. Right. And, and, and then there's like this kind of lowest common denominator that keeps dropping, it seems like, every month or so. So I don't know. I just – I. I, I keep coming back to it and I just have yet to come up with any good reason why – I should stay on what you mentioned at the beginning about this idea that, well, you know, if they clean their, themselves up and if this and that happens, then I wouldn't want to miss that. It's like, well, I can always just start a new account. Right. Like there's nothing. I have all the pictures that I've posted on my Facebook account. There's nothing sacred on there mm-hmm. that that I couldn't get at some point just by going through my portable hard drives. That's true. And uh, I, you know, I, I think what I'm going to try to do, you know, next, ne- next week being Christmas week in my, and uh, Ellie's off of school. My wife is off of work. I'm obviously on a break for 18 months, basically. Um, and I think I'm going to, I'm going to experiment with deleting the app 
and uh, and kind of logging out. And and maybe that's a for a good initial step to you know instead of deleting the accounts, just not I don't know. You can deactivate without deleting, right? Because I think deactivating is like you can reactivate at any time. Yeah, but that. That's kind of that kind of misses the point, though. Okay. In my opinion, okay. because just just in my opinion, because when you just deactivate, they still have all your information. That's fair. Like yeah. you're, you're not add, you're not adding any new information. But fair. They, but but they, have, they have all your old stuff that's not that has not been post that has been posted previously. Right. So I don't know. Anyway, yeah. last go ahead. Last topic. I can't we'll, guess on we'll this one. About it yeah, I can't guess on this one. So go we'll, for it. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll talk about we'll talk about the Facebook thing a little bit closer to the new year. I'll tell you where my progress is on that. And you should think about it too. You know. Okay. Um, anyway, my uh, so I was listening to a, a one shining podcast. I don't know if you've ever heard it before. It's the college, not, but... it's college basketball podcast on the Ringer. Okay. Uh, it's hosted by Mark Titus and Tate Frazier. It's fun. If you you would like it as a college basketball guy, but they, they had Jeff Goodman on. Um, okay. who's a you know, long time writer. He was with ESPN forever. He was the AP before that. He's with stadium now. And, and they had a really interesting conversation about basically basketball journalism. He went through this whole thing with like when he was in Lithuania with LeVar ball, he talks a lot about like how he handles sources and you know, how he handles scoops and things like that. I, it was really fascinating. I'm, I'm probably going to clip it and play it for my intro class in the spring, okay. but they brought up something that was interesting, which is, you know, how do you handle the the, the way that you talk about college athletes? Uh, you know, do you do you be critical of them? Do you you know be, you know or not? Like I've seen this debate back and forth. This idea that well, you know, they're not professionals, and so as a result, they they shouldn't be liable for the same sort of criticism that you would give a professional athlete. And yet, on the flip side, it's like. There's really nobody criticizing them, you know, in except for for coaches. There, there's not much like in most cases, especially at the highest levels of of college athletics, they are basically just de facto professionals, right? Um, particularly guys that are one and dones. Do you know? Do you do you just lay off of college athletes entirely, or is it fair to be critical of them? And so I wanted to ask you that, and I also wanted to tie in this concept of what's going on today, which is National Signing Day. Right. football and you know th this there was something else that goodman brought up so i'm asking you a, a double-barreled question here um as he talked about with basketball you know 10 years ago 15 years ago as soon as you found out where a kid was going to commit you just announced it and it didn't matter if he had like a special announcement that he was making about where he was going right. now that's basically all gone away and you have this situation that exists where uh, you know, there's like an embargo on that information, even among people that are covering recruiting and and people that are covering recruiting are fine with it because, as, as Goodman pointed out, they're not really journalists. They're they're recruiting writers, but they're, they're doing a different job than journalism within that position. So mm -hmm. so I guess I wanted to ask you about both of those things, like how how do you perceive the coverage of college athletes at Jesus college athletes. We put the emphasis on the right syllable athletes until I haven't podcasted in a while. <laughs> uh, and also how do you like with recruiting in particular, how do you, how would you handle that at this point in this particular media environment? That's the both really good questions. Um, so the first one, I think, you know, college athletes are fair for criticism. 
um, you know, they're, they, they are being paid. They're getting a scholarship. The issue is not that they're not getting paid, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's the amateur rules and all that. But they are getting paid. And they are, you know, public figures in the limelight. Um, and I think that it's fair to criticize them. It's fair to, you know, you know, criticize them when they make a bad decision, play a bad game. You know, um, you know, I, I, I tend to think that, you know, college sports tends to be so, especially college basketball, tends to be so coach centric because of kind of the historical access to players and, you know, the power slash perceived power slash important role with journalists that coaches play like your buddy buddy with the coach not the player and so you tend to you know it tends to be much more coach centric than 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 player centric but i think it's absolutely fair to be to be critical of players and the fact that they're not quote unquote professionals you know that 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 idea i feel like is the fuel behind the ncaa's amateur opinion you know these are student athletes just going out there and no they're 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 professional they're they're professional they're professionals they're doing a profession they're doing a job playing out there so i think it's totally fair you know within always within reason and same with pros i think within reason to be critical of players and play and stuff like that and so the second question to recruiting, that's a really, really interesting one um, because I've heard uh, Goodman on, I think, his own radio show, and I've played this for classes too. Um, Woj had sent it to me a long time ago. You know, he, his idea, his uh, stance, and this was a few years ago, so I'm, I have to listen to the podcast to see if it had changed, but basically, like, I don't care about somebody's big moment announcing it. My job as a reporter, I find news, I report news. Like, that's the job. Um, but then, then you get into, are you going to, if you report that you're doing your job, but now shoot, I've burned the bridge with this kid. His parents is an AU coach, three potential four sources, good sources for me while they're in college and when they're going to decide to go pro and stuff that's happening with their coach and stuff like that. And is it worth it? You know, is it worth, you know, is that the scoop that matters that, you know, if I know 12 hours before this kid's announces, if I knew last night where the number one kid is going to go for, uh, for college, how much does that matter that I get it up there 12 hours from a, from a pragmatic standpoint? So I don't know. I think it's challenging. I think that anytime you start making deals about embargoes and stuff with sources, that gets tricky. And I'm not a big fan of that because that's ceding my editorial power to my sources in a very, overt way and and it's um it throws my the power dynamic out and i'm not a fan of that but the reality of the situation i think it's a lot more nuanced than that because beat reporting is all about relationships and it's all about knowing people and having you know having a having that relationship with people that they'll call you back or that they'll give you a heads up about stuff and it can be hard to burn a bridge like that right off the right off the bat for minimal return on value if that makes sense no it does i mean we, that one recruit in the big scheme of things is not going to make or break your career and and there is a lot of damage I, it just it is interesting you know that that particular approach how it really encapsulates most of college athletics at this point because right. there's just all these trade-offs like you can't criticize the coach um, and you know, so you end up because that's your primary source for things. You can't break news on recruits. You can't do X, Y, and Z. There's all these quid pro quos 
it's very difficult to report on college athletics and and even high school athletics these days because you know if if you want to maintain access this is the one point where i'll and we'll finish up on this where if you're not interested in access and you're a good enough reporter that you can get information outside of just having things you know kind of like handed to you at particular points in time, it's not as big of a deal. It is interesting though, because, you know, most, and I think this is where newspapers come in and certainly television stations because they, they, their stock and trade tends to be the profile piece or the, you know, the, the personality, uh, you know, element of things as opposed to the game story, which we started off this thing talking about, you need to have that access because otherwise you're not going to be able to produce those things, at least according to the current business model. Right. And I, and, and it, it, I mean, the, like I said, the trade-off is so challenging to try to try to figure out, you know, is one scoop going to matter? No, not particularly, but you also don't want to be, you know, one scoop leads to two scoops. And I understand the idea of wanting to report it when you have it, like that's your job. Like, you know, in all things kind of big and small, you report small things along the way so that, you know, when something big happens, you have this credibility, you're that, that that's your job. And I was going to say, like, I can even remember like now, Jesus, 10, 12 years ago when I was covering college sports and pro sports, how much I just preferred covering pro sports because yeah. college sports, there was so much more barriers to access and so much more like value laden stuff. And, and the pros, like everyone knew why they were there. There was no you know, there was no compunction. It was a job. It was a lot more open. It was a lot easier to cover. And college, just by putting all of these weird artificial restrictions on it, it's not even about, you know, access journalism, which is a whole t- topic for another podcast. But it's the I can't talk to people. Be- and, it, and, and it just I can't. It, it was much harder to do the job well and to tell interesting stories than it was in the pros when everyone there wasn't that 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 kind of gatekeeper aspect to 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 every aspect of the existence it's an interesting point and it's one that uh, we need to be talking to our classes more about but that's yes. going to wrap it up for us because we both have calls shortly that we need to get on so yes uh, brian it's always good to talk with you via podcast and hopefully we get to do it again soon and uh, if we don't talk beforehand merry christmas happy holidays and happy holidays to all of you folks out there as well this is yes. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, and Happy Holidays, and hope you have uh, hope everything is good and how you want it to be Absolutely. for Christmas. So, so for Brian Moritz, I'm Galen Clavio. This is the flip side. We've enjoyed talking to you folks. We'll do it again, hopefully soon, maybe before 2019. I can't promise anything, but I'm not going anywhere, so <laughs> there's at least a chance. And one Woo-hoo! beer to keep an eye out for. Uh, I noticed it was posted on my friend Gary Saunders's Facebook feed. There you go. A uh, Shiner Bach has a chocolate and marshmallow Bach that I kind of want to try. I'm intrigued. Anyway, for Brian, I'm Gail. We'll catch you folks on the flip side. So long, everybody.